Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning into the program today. You're coming in through Spotify. Thank you. iTunes. Thank you. This podcast is available in all those areas. Probably more than that because Anchor really blasts them out to different uh, platforms. Um, If you're watching YouTube, please click the subscribe button. Don't forget to do that. I appreciate it when you guys tune in and watch this content. It means a lot to me and hopefully it is helpful um, for you and um, in your efforts to better understand the Godhead. That's really been the subject of inquiry over the last several weeks um, has been theology proper. That's really where I've been sitting and today will be no different. Today what I want to do is I want to look at another Cappadocian father. I want to look at uh, Gregory of Nyssa, or Gregory of Nyssen, and see what he has to say about uh, eternal subordination of the Son, see what he has to say on the uh, prospect of the plurality of beings, which is what I think ESS, even the, the modern conceptual version of ESS actually results in is is a plurality of beings. If you're consistent, that's the language you, you, you could actually apply to that position. We'll see what Gregory of Nyssen says about simplicity, the doctrine of divine simplicity, and the consubstantiality or the coessentiality of the persons. So it's gonna it's 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 going to be a it could be a long program. I don't think it's going to be all that long, but but we'll we'll see here because we're going to do a little bit of a review, a rehash of some things that have already been said. We're going to look at that whole James White Basil thing and just review that real quick before we move on. Um, and we're also going to look at here right off the bat um, something that ESS proponents claim, and uh, we're going to look at that as it's represented by. Dr. James Hamilton in a book called One God and Three Persons, which has a multiplicity of contributors, Kyle Clonch, James Hamilton, Bruce Ware, and others. Um, So we're going to look at a claim that ESS makes. We're going to first ask the question, what is ESS? And then we're going to look at that that primary source material, if you will, uh, written by a contemporary ESS. Uh, proponent. So um, before we jump into Gregory of Nyssen and how he's going to inform our understanding of the contemporary discussion, um, we need to ask, what is ESS? Because that's really what we're responding to and the position that is in conversation with the classical Christian understanding of Uh, of the Trinity. So what is it? ESS, eternal subordination of the Son. Um, Sometimes it goes by another uh, moniker, E-R-A-S, eternal relational authority, submission. Um, And so sometimes it's E-F-S, eternal functional subordination. Um, And so it it goes under all of those different names. Albeit those who commit themselves to ERAS really, I think, are more consistent and 
they travel a, a bit further than those who may just consider themselves proponents of something like EFS or even ESS. Um, and so uh, when, you, when you throw that authority submission in there, uh, what ends up happening is you, is you end up introducing a kind of gradation to within the divine essence as it exists in Father, Son, and Spirit. So uh, that's, a, that's quite a, a, a heavier commitment uh, to go ERAS. And ERAS is, is held to and committed to by uh, men like Bruce Ware and Dr. Owen Stray. Um, what, what James Hamilton has to say is, is, is telling, and I think if, if we understand what's actually being said, uh, we'll understand him to be not only inconsistent, but uh, actually um, uh, siding with, with the Arians, the Eunomians, which in this very quote that I'm about to read, he denies that he's doing so, but, but history will tell us a different story, and we'll, we'll see that here in a moment. Um, but he says, he says this, he says, again, this is coming out of One God and Three Persons, it's his chapter uh, in that volume. He says, there's a way of talking about these realities that both upholds orthodoxy and accounts for everything the text says. Of course, that's what's in question. Does it uphold orthodoxy? And, and we're contending that it does not. He goes on, but it is a way of talking that Giles, Giles Emery, is not willing to grant. And what they are, Christ and the Father are ontologically equal. In what they do, Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father. The Arians would not have affirmed ontological equality. We'll see that that's not the case. And in fact, the extreme Arians, as it were, that the Cappadocians contended with, the Eunomians, Eunomius himself, uh, they were asserting ontological unity and oneness and sameness or equality among the Godhead. The problem was there was there what they said beyond that was was uh, substantially uh, uh, inconsistent uh, or contradictory of that of that fundamental claim, and so they actually denied it. And we'll see that in in Gregory of Nyssa's um, uh, report here. But um, the other thing uh, I, I need to point out is that the claim in what they are, Christ and the Father are ontologically equal. Um, in what they do, Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father. Um, both of those claims, or both of the both parts of that claim, uh, utilizes ontological statements. It, it makes an is claim, uh, a statement of of, of quiddity, of identity. In what they are, Christ and the Father are ontologically equal. In what they do, Christ is, right? Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father. So that claim doesn't deal with only, with, with only some operation that can be uniquely appropriated to the Son or something like that. This statement is actually saying, making an identity claim, right? Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father. And and don't get all tied up in the in the in the language of functionality and things like that because what we're looking for here is the implication of the terms being used, and it really doesn't matter what 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 words you put between is and subordinate to. Uh, what you have is an ontological and uh, a substantial subordination of the son to the father. It doesn't matter how many words you put between is and subordinate. Uh, it doesn't matter. 
um, because the, 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 the baseline claim is that this is what the sun is, i.e. subordinate, right? <clears throat> and then he says the Arians would not have affirmed ontological equality, which we'll, we'll see here in a moment. That's just not the case. Um, so what happened the other day with, uh, with Dr. James White reading Basil? I just want to bring everyone up to speed on that. If you didn't see my last episode on Basil's Doctrine of Divine Simplicity, <clears throat> it was titled an Analysis James White, Basil, Medieval, and Puritan Theology, I think it was the, the, the title of that. So if you haven't watched that, go back and, and watch it, but I'll just give you a little brief snapshot here. Um, White was trying to make the case that, that Basil had a at least an alternate view of simplicity, and his case was, or was the point he was trying to make was, well, look, there's, there's, there's a, this doctrine of simplicity in terms of its outworking in Christian orthodoxy is quite eclectic, and there's there are different views, and so we should we should really be humble about you know coming down and saying really there's one orthodox view or position concerning the doctrine of divine simplicity. And um, he tries to use Basil to bolster that claim of eclecticism within that particular area of of, of theology proper. And we looked at Basil. We looked at the same letter that that White read. Hopefully we contextualized it a little bit better. And then we also looked at letter, that was letter 234, and then we looked at letter 235, which I think is a clear affirmation of simplicity in there. Just a run-of-the-mill orthodox affirmation of divine simplicity. There's nothing substantially different about uh, his doctrine of simplicity. Of course, you're going to find between Eastern and Western traditions, um, and, and, and also going that far back, you know, talking about the 4th century, you're going to find language that is uh, is going to be unfamiliar to us because it's going to be on the other side of uh, of, of several mountain peaks of Christian history, um, in which uh, or upon which language was refined, language was developed, language was um, uh, used in a more uh, precise manner. Uh, thinking about the uh, medieval theologians, uh, Duns Scotus. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the precision that you find there, but even going up to the Reformed Scholastics, people like uh, uh, Ames, um, uh, William Ames, uh, Peter Van Maastricht, Francis Turretin. Um, so, so obviously you're going to have a difference in expression between the Cap someone like the Cappadocians living in the 4th century and, uh, and dealing with Arians directly and you know the the medievals and the uh, and the and the reformed and the post-reformed scholastics living in the 17th century, uh, dealing with you know different heresies, Socinianism and, and things of that nature, um, and and by that time, of course, uh, uh, our ability, the ability of Christians to express these deep biblical uh, realities, had developed right, and so. Um, there is a, 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 a distinction in, in, in expression. But in terms of the substantial, what's being affirmed between the Cappadocians and someone like Francis Turretin is the same in terms of simplicity. Especially if you go back to Thomas Aquinas, and you can see several similarities. We looked at that a little bit in, in, uh, in the last episode on on Basil, there there are several similarities between Basil, Thomas Aquinas, the post-reformed, um, and and in fact, I think what you can see when when you look at Aquinas, when you look at Basil, 
is that Basil's is that there's a lot of carryover in Aquinas from the Cappadocians and um, what they had to say about how we talk and think about God, the manner in which we as creatures know God, all of that exists and, and had been received into Thomas's own way of thinking. And he's not ignorant of what was going on with Basil and, and Gregory of Nazianzen and Gregory of Nyssen. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's important to consider those things. So uh, Basil did not have a different view of simplicity, as we saw. Uh, he was responding to an interlocutor, which in the midst of, of an opponent, a, a theological opponent, um, <clears throat> he's, he's as well, just like Gregory of, of Nyssa, is responding to eunomianism, and, uh, which is a form of, of Arianism, and it, was, it, it, it could be called extreme Arianism. Um, and, uh, and so that's confusing in terms of reading the letter verbally, you're not, you're not getting the whole situation. You're not seeing the quotation marks and all of that. Um, and so, uh, that, that kind of can get jumbled and it's interesting to tell, it, it's interesting to, to, to be able to tell when you read the letter that, that Basil in fact, wasn't in letter 234, Basil wasn't even talking about simplicity. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the, 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 the object of his letter per se. Simplicity came up because it was abused it was applied wrongly by one of his opponents, and he set out to, in his response to that part of his opponent's objection, set out to correct his opponent by way of saying, that's absurd to apply simplicity in the way that you're trying to apply it. All right, but Dr. White took that as, as, as him saying, this version of simplicity that you're trying to use is absurd, and that's not at all what was going on in the letter. Um, and then in letter 235, you have a clear affirmation of non-composition in the dot in the Godhead, and and you know God is indivisible in all of this, at, in essence. So today, to kind of bolster what we saw in the previous installment, uh, I want to look at another Cappadocian, um, and uh, that's Gregory of Nyssa. And I want to look at him as as it regards or or regarding rather. Uh, ESS, eternal subordination of the sun or eternal submission of the sun. And I'm just going to start quoting uh, Gregory here. Um, he outrightly rejects ESS. It's, in fact, it's very interesting because there is a lot of things that he's rejecting here and uh, that that you would that you would mistake for being a contemporary uh, assertion or, uh, implication of modern uh, the modern ESS theories that that currently exist. Um, I just want to quickly get for you the the uh, placement of where we are reading from. This is letter two of Gregory of Nyssa to his most pious brother Gregory Peter, greeting in the Lord. Okay, so letter two. And I'm using uh, the Eterna Press volume. Uh, it's the St. Gregory of Nyssa collection. So that gives you an idea. And if you have that version, um, that letter begins on page 123. We're going to be reading uh, pages uh, 160, 161, 162. And then we're going to jump all the way to the introduction to his catechism on page 734. So if you, if you have that volume, that gives you an idea of, of where we're at. So this directly affects 
how we think about and speak about um, God, and it should um, inform our understanding of subordination, the implications of subordination, etc. He says the intention, and and by the way, it, 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 it it's worth re-mentioning that he's he is responding to eunomianism in this letter as well. So Basil was responding to eunomianism. And here, Gregory of Nyssa is responding to eunomianism as well. Eunomianism is an extreme form of Arianism. So, uh, just so you understand, because he's going to say some relevant things here on the next page that is <clears throat> going to reveal that, in fact, these Arians were asserting uh, a divine simplicity. They were asserting a, a sameness in, in essence or a oneness in essence, contrary to James Hamilton's claim earlier that we read. So he writes, the intention that runs through all this, however verbosely expressed, is one and the same, namely, to establish that there is no connection between the Father and the Son. The, that's what the Eunomians wanted to achieve. It's a big, inconsistent, weird thing. So just stay with me here. There's no connect, connection between the Father and the Son or between the Son and the Holy Ghost, but that these beings are sundered from each other and possess natures foreign and unfamiliar to each other. They, they have different natures, they're distinct beings, and differ not only in that, but also in magnitude and in subordination of their dignities. Now, the modern ESS proponent would say, well, we don't subordinate the Son to the Father in terms of dignity, but, but just this is what he's saying here. He's, he goes on. So that we must think of one as greater than the other. And, and, and that goes for, for, for anything anything you predicate of the Father. If you predicate something of the Father and, and what you predicate of the Father is greater or grander or above or higher or upper in relation to the Son, okay? That's anything that you predicate of the Father, if you consider the Father as, as being greater than the Son, you introduce gradation into the divine essence and you split the essence accordingly. So that we must think of one as greater than the other and presenting every other sort of difference, end quote. And so if you were to tell Gregory of Nyssa that the father has a grander or greater or superior authority than the son, to which the son must always be voluntarily subjected, which is just to say that there is a... a a, a will of a greater priority in the Godhead than the wills of Son and Spirit. Gregory of Nyssa would look at you and, and, and he would, Gregory of Nyssa would, would, would uh, categorize you and what you're asserting along with the Eunomians, all right? So if you just understand the kind of language that he's using here in terms of dignity, that's any kind of gradation essential gradation that you find in the Godhead or that is that is supposed in the Godhead, that is, that's opined about the Godhead, that is to commit the same fundamental principial error that the Eunomians were committing during Gregory of Nyssa's time. And so you, you can't, you, assertions, beliefs, words, ideas, about who God is, ha they, all of those things have implications. You can't just assert something and then disavow all of the necessary implications that those assertions bring about. Um, so, for example, 
I can't, um, I can't assert that the the father has greater authority than the son, and then just claim, but they're of the same essence, right? Because actually, what I'm saying implies, by way of necessity, because of the meaning of the terms, and because of the words that I'm using, that indeed that consubstantiality is not there, given my words, given what I'm predicating of father and son, respectively. All right, so you have to deal with the with the fallout of your position. You have to deal with, you have to explain why, if you don't believe it necessarily leads to those implications, which we're contending they do, you have to explain why they don't. You have to give a sufficient reason as to why they do not lead to those those uh, heterodox implications. Um, going on to, to page 161 here, just the next page, um, he starts addressing a plurality of beings, which was what the Eunomians were essentially trying to get away with. Um, and reading in, in kind of the first half of, of that page, uh, he, he says this, he says... Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read at length here, I think, because if I don't, I'll, I'll lose some of the context. Now, if he speaks thus of the mutual difference between the beings in order to avoid complicity with the heresy of Sibelius, who applied three titles to one subject, right? It's like modalism, right? Uh, one, you have one subject or one person, and, the, and they just manifest themselves in these three titles, modes, etc. Or manifest, it's, it just manifests itself in these three titles, modes, etc., we would acquiesce in his statement. So, in other words, he's saying if he uses the word beings in place of persons, but he's he's actually just predicating of beings what we would of persons, then really we wouldn't have such a, a big disagreement. It, it would just be, it, it would be, uh, we would acquiesce to his sentiment, uh, but we would take we would take issue with his wording, and he goes on to say as much. Nor would any of the faithful contradict his view, except so far as he seems to be at fault in his names, in his predication, and in, in the words that he's using, and his mere form of expression in speaking of beings instead of persons. So he, they would take issue with that. But in terms of, you know, if if he's just using the word beings and he's predicating of beings the same thing that the Orthodox would predicate of persons, well then it's not a big deal. I mean, we would correct his language, but other than that, we would have substantial agreement, right? Um, for things that are identical on the score of being will not all agree equally in definition on the score of personality. For instance, Peter, James, and John are the same viewed as beings. Each was a man, but in the characteristics of their respective personalities, they were not alike. If, then, he were only proving that it is not right to confound the persons and to fit all, three, all the three names onto one subject, his saying would be, to use the Apostle's words, faithful and worthy of all acceptation. Now, just, just to kind of get at, at, at what Gregory is saying here, he's not, he's not saying that there is difference between the persons in the Godhead, just as there is difference between persons here, human persons, all right? He's using an analogy, all right? And, and he's saying that the, um, the essence of humanity, right? There, there are distinction in persons in terms of the essence of humanity, yet they all share in or, 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 or partake of 
the human essence, right? And, and so he's using that as, a, as an analogy, as kind of an illustration here. Uh, but he's not, he's not saying that there's an identical, of, uh, identical kind of carryover from um, how we understand a distinction of, of human persons and how we understand the distinction in the persons of the Godhead. This becomes much more clear as we, as we go on. And he goes on, he says, but this is not his object. In other words, that's not what, that's not what uh, Eunomius is doing. He speaks so not because he divides the persons only from each other by their recognized characteristics. All right. And so this is where Gregory clarifies himself. What he's talking about, how the persons are distinguished is, is in virtue of the relations of origin. That's their recognized characteristics. Not only from their, from other by their, 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 their divides the persons only he said he speaks so not because he divides the persons only from each other by their recognized characteristics, but because he makes the actual substantial being of each different from that of the others, or rather from itself. And so he speaks of a plurality of beings with distinctive differences which alienate them from one another. So if you if you predicate things of the persons which would necessitate a distinction in being or a division in being, then you have to deal with that. So if you say uh, that the persons have three distinct wills, for example, uh, that there's a will for each person, uh, or that each person has a distinct center of consciousness, you're, you're, you're attributing different things beyond the relations of origin, which only describes the way in which the one divine essence exists. You're attributing different things, different quiddities, distinct substances to the persons. That's what a will is. A will is a substance in, in as much as it's a thing, right? Um, that's why it's important to predicate will of divine essence only, right? And then to say that that one will subsists in three distinct relations or persons or subsistences. Um, so uh, when, you, when you predicate a, a single distinct will in each distinct person or a single distinct consciousness in each distinct person, you're giving to that person a distinct essence or substance, uh, right, from the other two persons. That's the implication. That's the fallout of the language. Um, if, a, if a consciousness is a thing, then it's a substance. If a will is a thing, then it's a substance. And if you're saying that there are three different things divided up amongst three distinct persons in the Godhead, then you're, then you're saying there are three distinct substances. Eunomius was only being a consistent subordinationist. Um, he was saying there, he, he just went ahead and granted the language because his language was implying that already. There were three distinct beings for him in the Godhead. And uh, when, you're, when you're looking at modern ESS or ERAS, they should go ahead and grant that same language as well because the language that they are uh, that they're using necessarily implies such, right? And 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 um, and and they're just denying uh, what all they're doing. All modern ERAS uh, uh, theorists are are doing is they're denying the fallout of their position, right? They're denying the consequences of their beliefs, right? You can't deny the consequence of your beliefs. You have to deal with the consequence. You have to either show how it's not really a consequence. Or you have to capitulate to the consequence. You have to grant it. Um, and so if, if you don't, you're just going to remain logically incoherent or logically inconsistent.
he goes on and he says, while the church teaches that we must not divide our faith amongst the plurality of beings, that's very significant as well. So if we have one faith, which Ephesians 4 plainly says that we do, uh, then there must be one object of faith. And, and if you attribute different wills to the different or to the distinct divine persons, it would seem that what you're doing is you're introducing actually differentiation amongst the object of faith, such that you could say there are three distinct objects of faith. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you have faith that the Father will do this. You have faith that the Son will do that, namely submit himself to the authority of the Father. And you have faith that the Spirit will do X, Y, Z in obedience to the Father and the Son. So it seems to introduce even a, 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 a break in our one faith that we confess and, and believe in. So while the church teaches that we must not divide our faith amongst a plurality of beings, we don't have different objects for faith. There's one object of faith but must recognize no difference of being in three subjects or persons. No difference of being. Whereas our opponents posit a variety and unlikeness amongst them as beings. So the reason that, that they are three beings is because there is a variety and unlikeness amongst them at a substantial level. Three different wills. A subordination in dignity. A subordination in person, from one person to another. Um... A subordination in terms of authority. The father has greater authority. The, the son has a subordinate uh, authority uh, that that is that is always subject to the father, as it were. Um, and so, you see how the, the the contemporary language of ESS would seem to lead to a eunomian conclusion. And here's the part where James Hamilton his, is is wrong historically. James Hamilton saying that. Uh, he says this, direct quote, he says, the Arians would not have affirmed ontological equality. That's not what Gregory of Nyssa thought the Arians were teaching. Uh, because he says, he says this, but let us still scrutinize his words. He declares each of these beings, whom he has shadowed forth in his exposition, to be single and absolutely one. Okay, that's, that's what the Eunomians were saying. That's what Eunomius was saying. And here you have James Hamilton saying the Arians would not have affirmed ontological equality. And here you have Gregory of Nyssa thinking that that's exactly what the Arians were doing. Eunomius declares each of these beings whom he has shadowed forth in his exposition to be single and absolutely one. Then he goes on, he says, We believe that the most boorish and simple-minded would not deny that the divine nature, blessed and transcendent as it is, was single. Okay, so this is taken for granted. That which is viewless, formless, and sizeless cannot be conceived as a multiform and composite. But it will be clear upon the very slightest reflection that this view of the supreme being as simple, however finely they may talk of it, the Eunomians, is quite inconsistent with the system which they have elaborated. So now he's, he's kind of switched gears here, not really because this is all related, but he's coming at this from a from a slightly uh, distinct angle in saying that the uh, the eunomians are denying simplicity in what they're affirming they're de they're denying the simplicity of the divine being in what they're affirming so now he's criticizing them on the basis of the doctrine of divine simplicity and he's saying that you know this fundamental confession of our faith is being denied by their terms even though they're trying to hold on to it, they're trying to say that these three beings are absolutely one, but actually what they predicate of them implies that that's not the case, necessarily so. So again, Gregory of Nyssa 
is forcing the Eunomians and Eunomius himself to deal with the fallout of his language, to deal with the consequences of his words and, and his turn. For who does not, he goes on, who does not know that, to be exact, simplicity in the case of the Holy Trinity admits of no degrees. Okay, so he's saying some, this orthodox confession that we make, the doctrine of divine simplicity, it does not admit of any degrees. This is why the Athanasian Creed says as much. If you look at the Athanasian Creed, there is no greater and lesser in the Godhead. That's on the basis that's founded upon the doctrine of divine simplicity. There are no degrees. And so when you take the ERAS opponents specifically, like Dr. Bruce Ware, uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, and others who, who introduce a superior authority to within the Godhead, you have degrees. You have substantial degrees and authority that the Son must be subject to. All right? And that would have been criticized by Gregory of Nyssa along Eunomian lines. In this case, he goes on, there is no mixture of conflicts of qualities to think of we comprehend a potency without parts, and by potency, it doesn't mean passive potency, which is what we say when, when we say God is actus purus, there is no potentiality in God. What we're, we're denying passive potency here. What he's, what he's talking about here is active potency, which is just synonymous with power. God is absolute power. We comprehend a potency without parts and composition. How then, and on what grounds, could anyone perceive there any differences of less and more? There is no difference in the Godhead on the grounds of divine simplicity between less and more, greater and lesser, etc., etc. There's no gradation, is what I say, in, in the Godhead. Um, unless you're, you're talking about the relations of origin which is just to say that the manner in which the one divine essence exists, all right? And that's quite different from positing three substantial realities that are distributed among, amongst the divine persons, wills, consciences, consciousnesses, uh, authorities, what have you. Those are all substantial traits. Those are all traits, properties, attributes that introduce... Uh, isness, uh, a division of isness, a division of quiddity, a division of essence, substance, etc., to within the Godhead. And you have to deal with the fallout. You have to deal with that implication. You have to explain why that's not the case if you con contend, in fact, that it's not. He says more of Eunomius, if he had been thinking of a being really single and absolutely one, identical with goodness rather than possessing it, he would not be able to count a greater and a less in it at all. Again, he's criticizing him on the basis of divine simplicity. Remember when, you know, Dr. James White and others have criticized this whole identi identity of attribute with essence, right? This is exactly what Gregory of Nyssa does here. He takes God's goodness and he, and, he, and he articulates it on the basis of an orthodox understanding of divine simplicity. If he had really been thinking of a being really, truly, single, and absolutely one, he's pressing him for consistency. Identical with goodness, identical with goodness itself, rather than possessing it. In other words, goodness is not something that God possesses. Goodness is something that God is, all right, according to Gregory of Nyssa, all right. So this is a run of the, again, this is a run of the mill, orthodox understanding of divine simplicity. There is no difference between what Gregory of Nyssa is saying here, what Basil has said, 
And what Thomas Aquinas, right, a thousand years later almost, says concerning his doctrine of divine simplicity, and then jump forward another 500 years, there's no difference between what's being said in Turretin, Peter Van Maastricht. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing a, a playing out of Christian orthodoxy. There's a Catholicity in this doctrine of divine simplicity that's been present. I mean, we're in the fourth century right here. These are the Cappadocians. And so, you, and, and you know, we could bring Augustine into this conversation as well, who's very formative in the Western tradition, um, and, and see that there's unity here. There's, this is not representative of a different doctrine of divine simplicity. This is, this is your run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, and let's just, I'm going to go ahead and finish up reading uh, Gregory of Nyssa here. Uh, actually, I'm going to read one more thing, and then we're going to jump over to his catechism, the introduction to his catechism on page 734 of this volume, so that if he acknowledges, you know me, if he acknowledges the supreme being to be single and homogenous, let him grant that it is bound up with the universal attribute of simplicity and infinitude. This is vitally important because in, in Peter Van Maastricht, he says the same thing about the, excuse me, about the attributes, the twin attributes of simplicity and infinity. Infinity he says he, he calls them omnimodal. God is omnimodally simple, omnimodally infinite, and and that's what Gregory of Nyssa is saying here. But he's he's referring to to the omnimodality, right? Uh, in terms of universal, it's a universal attribute in that this is an attribute that is predicated um, or is proper to each of the divine persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's not different simplicities divided up or different infinities divided up amongst Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That'd be nonsense. This is one infinity in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one simplicity in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One divine essence eternally existing or subsisting in three subsistences, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If, on the other hand, so, so he says that if that's really what he's saying, if he's saying that there's that there's one being, and he's single, homogenous, absolutely so. Let him grant that that's bound up with this universal attribute of simplicity and infinitude. In other words, that's the, that's the orthodox position. Then he says, if, on the other hand, he divides and estranges the beings from each other, conceiving that the, that the only begotten as another than the fathers, and that the spirit as another than the only begotten, with a more and less in each case... Let him be exposed now as granting simplicity in appearance only to the deity, but in reality, proving the composite in him. So interestingly, uh, Gregory of Nyssa is criticizing Arianism. He's coming at Arianism, or Eunomius' version of Arianism, on the grounds of divine simplicity. He's using divine simplicity as a weapon against Eunomius' doctrine of subordination. That's what he's doing. And I submit that that's what we should be doing in the modern case, using divine simplicity to come at eternal subordination of the Son, or ERAS, or EFS, however it, it manifests. Okay, now I want to just read one more thing, and we'll, we'll close out here, um, and y'all can get on with your day. Um, but if you, if, you, if you go to the prologue, of the of the of the catechism let's see it's called the great catechism you read things like this for god has a logos a word right 
else he would be without reason, right? So he's, what he's getting at here is is the Father, Son, Spirit, um, but specifically here, the Son. This is Trinitarian theology here. For God has a logos, else he would be without reason. And this logos cannot be merely an attribute of God. We are led to a more exalted conception of the logos by the consideration that in the measure in which God is greater than we, all his predicates must also be higher than those which belong to us. In other words, the predicates that we use of God must be understood at a higher, more transcendent level than how we predicate of human beings or creatures in general. And, and that would later come to be distinguished in terms of analogical predication, right? To use more precise terminology, and that's what Gregory of Nyssa is getting at here. So again, that's another point of orthodoxy that, that, that finds itself uh, as a kind of a golden thread throughout, throughout the whole of Christian history. And then he says, it must also have an independent life, not a participated life, else it would lose its simplicity. And as living, it must also have the faculty of will. This will of the Logos must be equally by his power, must be equaled by his power. For a mixture of choice and impotence would, again, destroy the simplicity. Thus, the mystery of the faith, <clears throat> and I'm skipping a few lines here. Thus, the mystery of the faith avoids equally the absurdity of Jewish monotheism and that of heathen polytheism. On the one hand, we say that the word has life and activity. On the other, we affirm that we find in the Logos, whose existence is derived from the Father, okay, the eternal processions, all the attributes of the Father's nature. Okay, that's very key in understanding everything that Gregory of Nyssa says before that point, what he's talking about. It's very key in understanding. So everything that the Father has, the Son has as well. All right. And, and what, what ERAS does in, in, in particular is it introduces something that the Father has that the Son doesn't have. Namely, the Father has a will that the Son doesn't have. The Father has a grade of authority that the Son doesn't have. <clears throat> and so you cannot say consistently, with any shred of, of logical coherence, what Gregory of Nyssa just said there in the introduction of the Great Catechism. Um, and so again, when we're looking at something like ERAS, ESS, EFS, and, and we're looking at, at those who, who write about it, who, who teach it in their seminary classrooms, who preach it from the pulpits. God help their congregations. They have to account for the fallout of the positions that they take. They have to account for the implications, the logical implications, the logical fallout of the positions that they take. And as far as I can tell, that's not being done. Because out of one side of the mouth, it said, the Father has a greater authority than the Son. And then out of the other side of the mouth, it said, oh, but they're all of, of one essence. Um, how? You have to explain how that's the case. How can you maintain a single essence when, in fact, you are introducing substantial inequality and division within the Godhead? Right by saying that there is a greater, that's an ontological statement, by the way, that there's a greater authority. It's a quittitative statement, greater, higher. Uh, it's, it's priority over that of the sons and the spirits, we might add. Okay, so hopefully this episode was helpful um, in, in just looking at another Cappadocian. 
you know, the Cappadocians are being used and the East in general is often abused in terms of showing an alternate view of, of divine simplicity. And I just do not see that to be the case. Once you actually dig into uh, the letters, the literature, this is Gregory of Nyssa. You could go to Gregory of Nazianzen and, and find similar language. Um, and, we, and we may do that at some point in the future. Um, what you see is, is an orthodox doctrine of divine simplicity that was received later on, not changed, not diverged from. Uh, it was received later on in the tradition, or as the tradition moves on from the point of, of the 4th century. It was received on into the 5th century by Augustine. It was received on into the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century. Get to Anselm, received by Anselm. Thomas Aquinas, received by him. Duns Scotus, received by him. Albertus Magnus, before Aquinas, Aquinas' teacher, received by him. Okay, so you, you get the feeling that, that this is all kind of playing out in a linear, consistent fashion, that this is something that Christians have affirmed for a very long time to greater or lesser extents. And that's important to understand, that, and I'll just end here, that a, um, a, a more basic affirmation of divine simplicity is not a different doctrine of divine simplicity. Just because you do not talk about it as much or use as much words to precisely kind of um, exposit its significance doesn't mean you deny it or have a different version of it, right? This is a, 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 a quantitative thing, right? This is a, a you know, a, you, 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 a person who confesses divine simplicity may not know all the inner workings and the inner mechanics in terms of our terminology that we've used about it, um, concerning it. Uh, they, they may not know all that stuff, and they just confess it to be the case, right? They just the doctrine of, of the Trinity. They may just say, I believe God is one in three. And that's an orthodox, as far as it goes, that's an orthodox understanding of the divine Trinity. It doesn't go any further. Now, if they go further, and they, they, of course, exposit an understanding of that statement that contradicts um, the orthodox understanding, that's an issue. But if they stop at a certain place, right? You have the laity, the people in the pew. They just stop at a certain place and don't go any further doesn't mean they're unorthodox. It doesn't mean they have a different version of orthodoxy or something like that. It just means that that's the, that's the quantity of knowledge and, and predication that they, that they have about God, concerning God at that point in time. And when we look at church history, uh, you know, in general, we look at the whole of it. Uh, that's largely what we see, you know, in the earlier formulations. You just don't have as much of it, and you get, you know, you, you get to the medieval period, and you have a lot more of it, and and still the first version of it, not version of it, but the first articulation of it is not discarded, it's actually received and built upon. That's how orthodoxy works, and, and the way we talk about God. We, re we received it, and we build upon it. We don't change it, we don't throw it away, we don't remove the landmark, so to speak, we, we don't trash it, we keep it and build on it, right? That's, that's how... That's how creatures, Christian creatures, have developed in their speaking and thinking about God and, and their understanding of Scripture. So, anyway, hopefully this was helpful. If, again, don't forget to click the subscribe button, the bell for continued notifications and all of that. Check out my newsletter, joshsummer.substack.com. There's a free and a paid subscription. Of course, that paid subscription helps produce content like the present video. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.